Hello, everybody. Before we start today's podcast, I wanted to let you know that I am having a spring celebration sale on my CCRN. So right now you can buy my CCRN online program for $199. There is no code needed. You can just head over to my website at khoppypresents.com or use the link that I've provided in the description. And it is already marked down to $199 in celebration of spring. This online program is worth 30 continuing education hours, 24 7 365 lifetime access, and you'll also be getting periodic updates as they're available. So I just wanted to let you know and enjoy the podcast. Have a wonderful day. Bye-bye. Hello, and welcome to this podcast today where we are going to be talking about the patient with acute pancreatitis. Now, just one little reminder, and that is if you are interested in a full online CCRN review course or a PCCN review course, please head on over to my website, khoppypresents.com, and you will find the link for that below. So let's get into pancreatitis. You know, when you look at the pancreas, it's always referred to as a fish-shaped organ. That's because when you look at it, you know, it really does kind of look like a fish. It has a head, a body, and a tail. And so if you can imagine this fish and fish-shaped organ with a big, huge duct coming down the middle of it, that is the main pancreatic duct known as the duct of Wurzung. Now you might be thinking, well, why in the world do I need to know that? Well, the duct of Wurzung merges with the common bile duct. They come together. They merge to form this structure that's called the ampulla of Vater. And the reason why I'm even bothering to bring this up is it really hits home the fact that when you talk about the causative factors for pancreatitis, certainly one of them is gallstones. So if you have a gallstone that rolls on down the common bile duct, and it winds up in the ampulla of water, it certainly can really obstruct flow out of the pancreas. And the one thing that you need to know also about pancreatic enzymes is once they hit that main pancreatic duct, that duct of Wurzung that comes down the middle, they are activated. And what activated enzymes do if they can't move or go to the place in the body where they can work is in this case, they start auto-digesting the organ or structure where they are static. In other words, these enzymes can't move. And so we're going to talk about that as the causative factor for the inflammation that we see in the patient with acute pancreatitis. So what we have then is we have these activated enzymes. They are released into that main pancreatic duct either because of alcoholism or an acute obstruction like a stone, a gallstone that has rolled down and actually has plugged up the main pancreatic duct. Um, either way, uh, we have a situation where we have uh, inflammation because these enzymes start auto-digesting the pancreas, particularly the enzyme trypsin. 
Now, as we have increased inflammation, we have increased microvascular permeability. And so what winds up happening is you wind up with an edematous pancreas, and then the tissue around the pancreas becomes edematous as well. So as we progress, we have this whole inflammatory process, which indeed could wind up causing the systemic inflammatory response. And then when you think about the pancreas, you think about the fact that the head of the pancreas is right behind the stomach and the body and tail swing out and toward the left. Above the pancreas, if you go straight up from the pancreas, you're going to find the left lower lobe of the lung. So we see then that there is that potential that as you have acute inflammation of the pancreas and peripancreatic edema, we could wind up with left lower lobe inflammation, atelectatic changes that we hear with our stethoscope or see on the chest x-ray associated with inflammation that's working its way up to the left lower lobe of the lung. Also keep in mind that acute pancreatitis can result in ARDS or the acute respiratory distress syndrome. So when we're talking about causes, two of the most common, as I mentioned before, are biliary tract disease and alcohol abuse. Those are the big players. There can be other things such as a disorder of the duodenum, uh, trauma, pregnancy, any kind of vascular disorder, hypothermia, end-stage renal disease, even drugs. Something as simple as a thiazide diuretic can cause acute pancreatitis. I mean, the laundry list is very long. But we have to just keep in mind that the two common causes, 90% of the time, are either biliary tract disease or alcohol abuse. And so in 80% of the cases when patients come in, they have acute edematous interstitial pancreatitis. And a lot of times we can get resolution of that. Um, 20% of the cases will progress to acute necrotizing pancreatitis. And of course, if we get to that situation, we have a patient whose mortality rate increases. Now, another thing that I need to bring it up to, um, another thing I need to bring up is hemorrhagic pancreatitis, where we can have a Uh, a retroperitoneal bleed as a result of pancreatitis. And then we look for echomotic areas around the umbilicus, which is called Cullen sign, C-U-L-L-E-N, Cullen sign, or Gray-Turner sign, where we have an echomotic area over the flank. And that echomotic area does not need to be bilaterally, so it can just be on one side. So one of the characteristic features when a patient presents with acute pancreatitis is pain. Makes total sense, does it not? Patient presents in pain, and that's usually what brings the patient in. And so this pain just is kind of like bring it to your knees type pain. Uh, The patient also presents and appears very dry. So they'll have hypotension, tachycardia, they might have a fever, maybe just low grade. Um, If there's an obstruction present, like we said, a gallstone could be obstructing that main pancreatic duct, we could have a patient that presents jaundice. 
Certainly nausea and vomiting is very common. The patient may also wind up with ascites related to the generalized inflammation. They have rebound tenderness. So remember, rebound tenderness, we see it with peritoneal inflammation. So when you palpate the abdomen and push in on the abdomen, we notice that upon release, the patient has increased pain. That's rebound tenderness. They are tympanic to percussion over the abdomen, decreased or maybe even absent bowel sounds. They also have statorrhea, statorrhea, and statorrhea is fatty stool. And one of the ways that you can identify fatty stool is fatty stool very typically floats. I know that sounds really gross, but that really is true. They could also have, because of atelectasis, they can have atelectatic changes in the left lower lobe, so you might hear uh, crackles beginning at the left lower lobe. They can also go on to display what's called Schwastek's or Trousseau's sign. Schwastek's sign is where you tap over the, um, the facial nerve, so over the temporal area into the cheek area. You tap over that and you see a little bit of twitching at the eye, the corner of the eye. Or you can see, depending upon where you're tapping, you might see that the patient has, um, you know, they, they curl the left side of their lip or they have uh, a little bit of twitching at the very corner of the mouth on the same side that you're tapping. That's Schwastek's. Trousseau's sign is where you put that blood pressure cuff around the patient's arm, you pump it up, you pump it up suprasystolic, so you pump it up up over the patient's systolic pressure, and you leave it. Oh, not till the next shift or anything, but you leave it on for at least a minute. And what you'll notice is that the patient will flex and have spasms of the hand and wrist. That is called Trousseau sign. Now, if you have a situation where you have a positive Schwastex or Trousseau sign, you have to keep in mind that that patient um, has a critically low calcium level, and hypocalcemia is a big problem in patients with acute pancreatitis because the ionized calcium uh, in the body becomes bound. And when an ion becomes bound, it's no longer functional in the blood. So ionized calcium becomes bound um, in, a, uh, in pancreatitis, and so your overall calcium level drops. So these patients actually can present with hypovolemic shock uh, and um, fluid maldistribution because they're sequestering a lot of fluid in the abdomen. Now keep in mind, this is also the type of patient that is going to come in and present with signs and symptoms of alcohol withdrawal as well. Because again, most of the time, we are looking at alcohol-related uh, disease or gallstones as the primary etiology for acute pancreatitis. So again, we look, at, look for decreased K, decreased MAG, decreased calcium and albumin. And, you know, the albumin is typically down in anybody with alcoholism anyway, and so is magnesium. And we know this about magnesium, is that there has to be enough magnesium in the body for the body to be able to hold on to, to potassium. 
Or I can put it to you this way, hypomagnesemia promotes potassium wasting. So if you don't have enough mag, you're not going to have enough K, period. So I always tell people, you know, if you're chasing somebody's potassium and you're giving K-lore and K-dur and you're giving K every which way known to man, you have your patient sniffing lines of K, okay, so you really wouldn't do that. That's something you would never do. But for illustrative purposes, you can't get the K to come up. Somebody has to take a step back and say, what is the magnesium level? Okay, so now of the ion changes that we see with pancreatitis, keep in mind that hypocalcemia is the classic sign. Along with this, we see elevated serum glucose because, you know, it makes good sense, does it not? The pancreas plays a very important role in um, glucose management and glucose regulation through its secretion of insulin and glucagon. Elevated triglycerides will be present. present. Uh, We might draw blood and see that the blood is grossly lipemic. Elevated serum amylase, elevated urine amylase, and the serum lipase will go up as well. Now, as a general rule, lipase is more sensitive uh, for pancreatitis, although we draw both of them, amylase and lipase. Lipase has a tendency to be a little bit more predictive of somebody getting better. It usually hangs around longer. Sometimes amylase, serum amylase kind of flashes up like a flash in the pan. But either way, if you're looking at amylase or lipase, you'll notice that both of them are elevated about three times the normal value. The thing that you need to keep in mind, though, is that the elevation, the actual numerical value that we get with elevated amylase or lipase, it does not correlate with the severity of the pancreatitis. Another little pearl to keep in mind is that patients with renal insufficiency may have elevated amylase and lipase anyhow due to decreased uh, clearance. So just a couple of things to keep in mind. We may see elevated BUN, that could be related to low volume status, And so we have poor renal perfusion and elevated BUN, as well as concentrational effect. We can also see the liver enzymes go up. So we're looking at AST and ALT and ALK phosphatase. Now, H&H really kind of can go either way, can it not? So if the patient is dry, we're probably going to see H&H go up from a hemoconcentration effect. However, if the patient has hemorrhagic pancreatitis, maybe that's not exactly the case. And now we can see the H&H drop due to bleeding. We also uh, commonly see um, a shift to the left of the white blood cell count, especially if this pancreatitis has an infectious component to it. And that would be the one clinical indication to prescribe antibiotics to a patient like this. So we talked about uh, the chest x-ray, right? We talked about atelectatic changes, perhaps left pleural effusion, pneumonia, uh, elevated left hemidiaphragm, left atelectasis, signs and symptoms of ARDS, uh, flat flat plate of the uh, abdomen may show cholelithiasis, 
perhaps a dilated bowel and ileus. Ultrasound might be showing us pancreatic swelling, gallstones, a pseudocyst perhaps, or a fluid collection, which really when you talk about a pseudocyst, a pseudocyst is a fluid collection usually full of pus um, on the inside or the outside of the pancreas. So when we look at CT, we might see enlargement, edema, necrosis, or presence of that pseudocyst. And ERCP is kind of a risky proposition in patients like this unless we have somebody that has pancreatitis as a result of obstruction because of gallstones. Then we have to get in there and get that stone out of there. What are our treatments? Maintain circulating blood volume and fluid balance. Of course, the general rule of thumb is uh, lactated ringers, uh, 20 mLs per keg as a bolus, followed by 3 mLs per keg per hour. Um, And that has really shown to improve outcomes within 36 hours in patients with mild to moderate pancreatitis. Pain management, also extremely important, usually narcotic analgesics is what we're talking about here. We talked about antibiotic use, uh, blood products as needed, and nutritional support really should be started early. Um, You know, when we talk about, you know, how you start nutritional support in somebody with pancreatitis, if they are able to eat, in other words, we have the nausea under control, Uh, There really isn't much of a difference between PO intake, NG intake, or a nasal jejunal uh, tube. However, you know, if you have somebody that has this intractable type of uh, vomiting and nausea, maybe they have um, an ileus present, and now we need somebody, or I, I should say we need an NG tube for that person. So it really depends upon the person. And in fact, TPN may even be employed when the inflammation of the pancreas is slow to resolve. So we're, say, for example, at the seven-day point or more, and you know, a patient has ileus, has not been able to take in any nutrition, then we have to think about TPN. We also want to replace needed electrolytes like calcium, potassium, and magnesium, and if the patient has uh, ascites, certainly uh, sodium restriction is important. Depending upon the cause of the pancreatitis, if we're talking about somebody with an alcohol disorder, uh, then we're talking about replacing thiamine, folic acid, and um, soluble, fat-soluble vitamins. Now, we talked about pseudocyst. Uh, pseudocyst can... Um, be identified when the patient has persistent pain or high amylase levels that are persistent, okay? Um, Sometimes patients can be asymptomatic of this, okay? So we notice, for example, that the amylase levels are not coming down. So we can just diagnostically, you know, through imaging, follow them until resolution, we kind of don't want to go in there and drain the pseudocyst because anytime you drain a cyst of any sort, you certainly have the possibility of, of actually like perfing, perforating the uh, cyst and all of the pus and material 
that's inside that cyst gains access to the peritoneum, which is never makes for a good day. And now you have a patient that's possibly septic. If we have somebody that's very symptomatic or infected, so we see the elevated WBC count with the shift to the left, meaning that we have this underlying infection brewing, well, then we need to uh, decompress. Perhaps we need to decompress the pseudocysts. Now, sometimes that's done percutaneously, sometimes that's done endoscopically or surgically, depending upon where the cyst is located. Complications, of course, are the possibility when you're draining a pseudocyst. Um, complications include infection or hemorrhage or rupture, and we talked about that, which is never a good day, or obstruction of adjacent tissues actually can be caused by the presence of a pancreatic pseudocyst. So we really have to take this kind of on a case-by-case basis. So guys, thank you very much for joining me today for acute pancreatitis. Again, please join me on my website and do check out my CCRN as well as my PCCN online review courses at khoppypresents.com. Have a blessed day. Bye-bye.